You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, Resonate, uh, we are in this series, Set Free to Live Free, and we're talking about this uh, reality of power and freedom. And one of the most powerful things is a truth that is self-evident. And uh, you may not be able to explain it, but it's one of those things that you, that you cannot deny. And for us as Christians, one of the things uh, that is one of those promises is that we are going to be transformed. That as a Christian, that, that promise is that we are, we are people that are transformed. But what happens when you still have the issue, when you can't seem to get past that thing, or when it's, you seem to be in a rut and you keep kind of going back to that thing over and over and over? I don't know if you've been there, um, but if you're anything like me, there are times when you think about being a Christian and it seems like you're missing something. It seems like I'm missing something. Uh, and, and it's like either this thing doesn't work or this thing, uh, like I'm not doing it right, or, or sometimes I just feel like a big fake um, because it seems like there's this thing that I should be doing, this way I should be acting, but I just can't seem to, to get there. And it seems like if I look back at who I was a year ago and I look back at who I am now and, and that in Christ is supposed to be transformative, I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. I'm not sure if this thing actually works. It, it reminds me a little bit of essential oils. Uh, I don't know if any of raise your hand if you are into essential oils. Okay, yeah, a few of you. Um, I'm not on the essential oil bandwagon, um, and, I, and I can't figure it out because when, it ex- when people explain this to me, it's like I have this headache, and then I just put my essential oil into the diffuser, and my headache goes away. Or like I have a stomach ache, and then I put this you know, eucalyptic oil or whatever um, into this diffuser, and all of a sudden I begin to breathe these things, and my stomach thing goes away. And then you begin to question more. Okay, so tell me more about this. How did you get the stomach thing? It's like, well, you know, I, uh, I, ate, I ate something that had been in my fridge for three weeks. And I think like, I'm not sure if that's a product of essential oils. Like, I'm not sure if that's how that thing works. And so um, there's just this big debate on whether essential oils work or not. And I, I, I'm just not sure. I read all these things about, because all these people are like, this is it. They're essential, Keith. You know, this, it's in the word. They ha- you have to have these, right? And I just can't seem to, and sometimes that feels like Christianity. Um, and it feels like, um, does this thing actually work? Or is this like this mental construct? Or, or like, like we just trying hard? Um, and what we begin to see, if you're anything like me, and you begin to say, okay, what does this look like? I think one of the most powerful things is when people look at our lives and say, hey, that is undeniably true. That is undeniably transformative. I look at your life and you're not who you used to be. Um, and yet there's a moments where we don't actually know what it looks like to change our lives and to be someone different. The good news is that as we look in scripture and as we begin to see, this is what, um, this is what gets addressed and the Bible points us to how it is that we actually change and what it looks like. So we're going to be in Romans 6. And the hope of this series is that what is actually true, that what Jesus did would be practically true in your life. And if you're actually free, you should be practically free. 
And if you're actually transformed, you should be practically transformed. And so in this, we look at this and we begin to see um, really the baseline for this and begins to put a whole new idea in our hearts and in our heads for how we should act. And this is just, this is deep and this is rich stuff. So buckle in. We're going to be getting into one of the most significant passages of scripture, Romans 6. It says this in verse 10. The death that he died, meaning Jesus, he died to sin once for all, for all of us. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, this, when we, before we go any further, we have to understand this is talking about Jesus. And he's talking about this thing that Jesus did. And Jesus dying once and for all to abolish sin. And what, he, what happens is when Christ died, he broke the power of sin. And when you, when you became a Christian, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, when you became a Christian, what happens is you were in Adam. And this is a couple weeks ago. We go back. If you don't know this, we, we've talked about this. You were in Adam, right? This is the, the beginning of who you are. And you were put into Christ. And that was the transformation that happened. That what was true of Adam was true of us. Now, what is true of Jesus is true of us. And there was a divine change. And we became brand new people. And now we have the same relationship to sin that Jesus had to sin, right? And if he overcame sin, if he died and once and for all and overcome and overcame death and sin, ultimately that is now the relationship that we have to sin. And here's what it says in the same way. Okay. This is how we begin to understand that we're to live this count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is what is clear to us that oftentimes when we begin to think about the conversion experience or the desire to follow Jesus or what happens when we become a follower of Jesus, we begin to think about this relationship change. Now, this was, we were at odds with God. Maybe we didn't even know we were at odds with God, but we were enemies of God. We didn't know it, but we began to recognize we did our own things and we didn't look at, live up to the perfection of who God uh, is. And so that separated us from God. And Jesus came and through Jesus' death on the cross, he paved the way for us to have a relationship with God. And we talk about that and we talk about this relationship that we have. And then as at the end of our life and eternity, we spend eternity in heaven versus hell. But the thing is, we have to understand that it's not just the relationship to, ch that, to God that changed, but our relationship to sin that changed. And so no, not only do we have a new relationship with God, but we have a new relationship to sin. And this is profound. And so we begin to understand what does it look like for us to think differently about sin. Now, this is one of those things. This is, we're, we're not trying to think this is to be true. This is true. So this is how we should act. And so it says this in verse 12. Therefore, in light of this new relationship to sin, in light of the fact that Jesus has overcome sin, and now we have the capacity to overcome sin and death, here's how we are to live. Do not... Let sin reign in your mortal body, right, right, your, your physical body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Now, what happens is in light of this new relationship that we have in Christ, that we have now towards sin that gives us freedom and gives us power, here's what we begin to understand. We begin to think this, to understand this reality that sin dwells in our mortal body. 
right? So in our body, this is what we get from Adam as, as humans that have come from all the way from the very beginning, right? That in us, there is in our, in our bodies, this is where sin will reign. Will reign. And, but the key is, is that we understand what has changed in our life. That as we are found in Christ, that we are identified in Christ, that our moral body is not us. It houses us, but it is not us. And there's something that changes when we begin to follow Jesus, that this mortal body is only a part of the story, but us, this thing, who we are, it just houses who we are. Therefore, what is he doing? He's speaking to sin. It says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body and do not offer any part of your life to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Now, what you have to understand here is that what Paul is doing is incredibly clear because if you don't understand this, then, then ultimately you're never going to over, overcome sin. You're always gonna stay in the rut. The issue is always gonna be the issue. You're never gonna change. You're never gonna be transformed until you understand that sin is, this is what he speaks to this, that sin is a separate entity in your life. You have to speak to sin as a separate entity, that it is not you, that it is a part of your mortal, but that it is not you. And in this, as you begin to think about this, think about sin as a separate entity within you. It's like Paul personifies sin. It says this, that sin resides in your mortal body. But if you will learn to think about sin as a separate entity, you will learn to identify with your identity in Christ more than you do with your sin. And here's where it becomes really clear that there's these things that happen when you do this thing that you don't want to do, right? When you, when you go and, and, you, and you fall into temptation and, and you sin, and then if I were to ask you maybe 30 minutes or, or a week later, hey, tell me about that. What, what, what happened there? And you, you'd be like, oh man, that's not, that's not what I wanted to do. That's, that's not who I wanted to be. That's, that's not really, man, I just, that's not... And so that's that moment where you begin to say, okay, on one moment, on one, you know, aspect, you're like, I desire to do this, man. I want to do this. Then on the other hand, you don't desire to do this. And so there's like this schizophrenia that's happening spiritually and your behaviors are like, I, I want to do this. And then, but then I don't want to do this. And, and then I did that and I was a mistake and, and man, but I really don't want to be that kind of person. So who's the real you? And I want you to understand that if you're in Christ, here's what he's saying. The, the person who is real, the real you is the person who longs after righteousness. That is the real you. But when you begin to think as sin is a part of your identity, what happens is you get really confused and you begin to have this moment where it's like, is this really what I want? Or is that really what I want? And how do I go back and forth? And now there's all kinds of guilt between going back and forth from this thing to that thing. And so what will happen is you will either identify with your sin or you will identify with your heavenly father. But you need to understand that your identity is one of the two and that your identity is the source of your behaviors. And out of this, you begin to operate. And so what is going to happen is sin is going to appeal through your body. And sin is going to appeal through your emotions. It's going to appeal through your senses. It's going to appeal to you. And you have to understand that you are not your body. 
that your body houses you, but that is not who you are. You are not sin slave. This is how we begin to understand that our old self, let me say it this way, that the old me is like sin and I against God. That when we begin to identify with sin, we begin to think these are just my desires. And this is more than any other time in our culture, identifying our desire, our, our, our desires create our identity. And so if I desire this, we like, I identify as, and you put it in the blank, right? Whether it's sexual orientation or whatever, those desires begin to be identities and we reflexively live out of those identities. I identify as X, Y, Z because I have these desires in my mortal flesh. And here's what the old me says, it's me and sin, my, my desires against God. And God has these rules and these regulations, and so it's me and sin, and I have to figure out, do I want to do God's thing, or do I want to do my thing? Which one is it going to be, me and God? But here's what happens. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you have a new identity, Galatians talks about there's an old me, and that is crucified, and now there is a new me. And that is not just like this pretty inspirational statement. But we begin to have this reality where we begin to understand the new me, it's me and God against sin. Because my true identity now, what is my true identity, who I am, is then pointed against sin. And it is sin that lives within me. And it is an entity in and of itself. It is not me. It is in my mortal body, which houses me, but it is not me. And so this is the key for us to be able to understand how we begin to get out of the confusion. And now when you begin to understand it's not this uh, reality of me and sin against God, it's actually me and God against sin. Sin is the intruder. Sin is the thing that we want to eject from our lives. And this is where it begins to be uh, clear in our life. And so what do we do? It says this, so do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Now, that may seem strange. We might be like, I, I'm not sure that I've ever done that. I've never said, you know, okay, sin, I would like to offer you this as an instrument of wickedness. You know, we've never had that moment where in our minds we had this clarity. So here's what happens. Sin comes in the back door in your life, or at least the side door. And what happens is you'll be in a moment and you will be having like a, a, a discussion and maybe that discussion turns into an argument and sin says, <clears throat> can, can, can I have your mouth for a minute? Because I got something to say. And, and that thing, this something that needs to be said in this moment. And, and, you, know, you, know, you're, and you say, yes, sin, you can have my mouth. After what they said, you can have my mouth. And then sin takes your mouth and it just, you know, blah, 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 right? And she said, and you did, and whatever, right? Blah. And this is what happens, right? And so sin takes your mouth, and, um, and then they say something back, and sin, sin says, I've got a few more things to say. So can I say some more? And then it goes back and forth. And it's like, that's not really me. That's not the who I wanted to be, right? And so there, th this is what happens. Or maybe um, sin says, hey, can I have your eyes? And, um, and you said, yeah, I'm at this party. You can, you, can, you can have my eyes. And you're like, whoa, wow. And sin says, can I have them for the whole party? And you're like, yeah, sin, you can have my eyes for the whole party. You can have my eyes as long as you want to have my eyes because wow, that's amazing. And this is what happens. It says this, that 
that in your mortal body, sin tries to get your body to make you feel a certain way, to make you think a certain way, to make you believe that that is really who you are and that is really who you want to be. So this is this reality that, that when you begin to say this, you know, you begin to say, man, I wish I hadn't and, 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 and I wish I had that back. That's the real you. Your, your sin says, man, I, I want to have that. Loan me your eyes. Loan me your ears. Loan, loan me your feet. I, go into places that you don't need to be going to, right? You have this as an opportunity. As you begin to respond to this, you have an opportunity to make practical what the Lord has made actual in your life. And the you that wants to, to, to take back your eyes and take back your, your, your mouth, that's the real you. That's the righteousness. It says this. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So instead of offering your bodies to Christ, offer them to to Christ or to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Now, this is a phrase that you're going to hear in Resonate Church. And this is a phrase that we begin to talk about because of the transformation of some going from death to life. And we talk about the response to Jesus as being a death to life moment. And in these death to life moments, here's what happens is there is a new you that you are in Adam, but now you are in Christ. And what happens is that before Jesus you know, oftentimes we think of ourselves as good people who sometimes do bad things, but that's not true. Before Christ, we were bad people who sometimes did good things, and oftentimes our motivations were nefarious anyway. And in this, as you begin to think about this, when sin said, hey, let me have your mouth, when sin said, hey, let me have your eyes, you didn't have a choice. You didn't have a choice. You were a slave to sin because you identified with sin. You identified with those desires that were antithetical to God. And in this, you begin to have this amazing shift that now as you're following Christ, you can offer your body to Christ. You can offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Now that you're in this life phase of your life, you can say, no matter how I feel, I can always say no to sin. You, the power of sin has been broken. That, that even though in your body you might feel like this is a, a thing, this might feel like a significant thing, you can always say no because the power of sin has been broken because you have a new identity in your life. And here's what happens. As you begin to do this, as you begin to offer every part to him as an instrument of righteousness, this is what begins to be transformed, right? And I want us to get that through this, oftentimes, we think, oh, I need more inspiration. Man, I need to, I need to go, to, go to church or I need to, to, to get this thing. I need to kind of get pumped up. I need to get this, this thing that like, helps me to have more willpower. Here's what happens. We think, oh, Holy Spirit, give me, give me strength to overcome temptation. But in our minds, what we think is I need to have more willpower. I need to have this, this thing that gives me enough gumption to be able to overcome my desires. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is not mess with your desires, but tell you a new identity. It's, it's not saying, hey, I'm just going to try to give you more willpower, but tell you who you are. And this is the profound nature. It says this, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. 
And it says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now, let me just unpack this. Paul's walking through really how we begin to live this out. And he's talking about this difference between living under the rules and living under grace. And what we understand is that Jesus came and paid the penalty once and for all and abolished the rules as the way to God. And so now you don't have to follow any of the rules to get to God. You don't have to say, I have to live this certain way. I have to be good enough to get to God. That doesn't matter at all. All you need is Jesus because Jesus was good enough and Jesus gave his life for you on the cross. And so he's saying this to a group of Romans, right? And they're like, hold it. Hold it, what? So you're telling me I can sleep with her now and go to heaven later? later? Like I can do whatever I want now and get whatever I want later? Like this is this crazy idea, right? That I get the best of both worlds. That I can live to the, to the hilt in, to, in terms of allowing my desires to run rampant in my life, right? And then all of a sudden at the end, there's no penalty for all of this. I can still choose to be able to be connected with God forever, right? So this is, if you begin to kind of look at grace and begin to say, okay, what happens here? And as you begin to press into this and say, okay, why is the church not the place for like rampant moral craziness, right? And why is it that the church doesn't have people that are just doing ridiculous things because, hey, there's no rules to be accepted by God. There's no rules anymore when it comes to being able to be aligned for eternity within, in heaven. So why is, it that, why is it that the church is not the place for all the debauchery, right? Here's what he says. He said, you've missed this. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? says this, by no means. And then here's the, like, I just wanted to put that on its own slide so that you understand. This is a really clear idea. It says this, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience that leads to righteousness. It's saying, it's, it's saying this, that when you begin to understand this, it says, it doesn't say by no means, if you do that, you're not a Christian. Or, or by no means, if you do that, you're going to go to hell. What he's saying is, if you do that, you lack knowledge. If, if you think that just this idea of since you're not under the law, but under grace, that therefore you can live towards the identity of sin in your life, you've missed out on understanding what defines your life. And so here's what happens. What, what we begin to think is that we are like this independent operator and there's like sin and there's holiness and we're like choosing between the two. But, but here's what Paul says to us. It is one or the other, that you are not an independent operator, that you are not someone who chooses their own way to do things, but you are going one way or the other. You are a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. And so what happens is oftentimes we think, oh, these are my desires, and then there's righteousness. And what sin does is like, yes, I'm in disguise. He thinks it's him. She thinks it's her, but they're actually a slave to me. And so we have to understand that when, there is, when we're not under the, the rules, under law, but under grace, 
then there's still this reality of which side are we going to follow? Which side are we going to lean to? So we are either offering the uh, members of our body to sin, and if so, we are practically sin's slave. We are actually bought by God, but we are practically sin's slave when we begin to identify with sin and we offer our sin. I said, sin, you can have my mouth, you can have my eyes, you can have my hands, you can have my feet, right? You can have my mind. We, when we begin to identify, we are sin's slave. And here's what happens, right? People, you hear, hey, you can be free from sin. You can be free from this stuff. But for some of you, you you say, I'm not sure if I really believe that. Like, I'm not sure if that's actually my experience at all. Because for some of you, uh, your experience tells you that in your independence, you're presenting your body as a slave to sin, and you act like someone who doesn't follow Jesus, but is following and identifying with the sin within you. And what happens is we begin to think, hey, something's wrong with God or something is wrong with the church or something is wrong with the Bible. And, and we've been doing this for a while and resonate. And what will happen is you will begin to identify with the sin in you and you'll begin to say, man, I wonder if this God thing's not it. I wonder if this is all just some sort of a psychological manipulation or, or if it's really real or, for, or, or like this, this whole transformation thing. Man, I don't know if that's really a thing, right? And so what happens is people begin to leave and people begin to leave the church and begin to have shipwrecks to their faith because what has actually happened is they have not practically identified with God over the sin within them. And then when they identify with the sin within them, they stay in the ruts and their life doesn't look anything else anything different than the world around them. And when they begin to say, hey, you should come and be a part of this, people look at their lives and say, it doesn't seem like this is anything different than any other club or any other organization that I can be a part of. Your life doesn't look any different than mine. And it's because we have failed to understand who we are in our identity with Christ. And we have taken, we've begun to say, I'm identifying with this. I'm identifying, I'm a slave to sin because I've identified with the sin within me. But it doesn't have to be this way. Here's what he says. He says, for some of you who understand this, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, he's saying this, some of you actually have this transformative reality that's working itself in, in your life. You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. That's those words, from your, you've obeyed from your heart this pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. What was actual has become practical. You've been set free from sin and you've become slaves to righteousness. That the reflexive behavior of your life looks like Jesus because you have identified with Jesus. And this is so powerful that you've been taken out of Adam and put into Christ. And what happens in this is that oftentimes we believe that there should be fundamentally something that's different about us, that fundamentally we should feel different. But we live in this mortal body, and this mortal body will send these emotions and will make you think things and will ultimately distract you. And if we begin to th think, hey, this is true, if I begin to feel it, then we've missed all that's happened. This is true if my emotions are sometimes somehow magically um, transported. Like, I, I guess I'll believe that Jesus is true if my issue is magically solved. But what he's given you is a new identity. 
And sometimes that immediately changes your issues. But oftentimes what happens is we begin to see this process of, 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 of understanding who we are in Christ. And that identity works out in our behavior and that behavior looks more like the righteousness and that righteousness leads to joy and leads to satisfaction and everything that we desire in this. And so what you need to understand is here's sin's lie. If you feel it, then you might as well do it. If you feel it, then you might as well do it. So since you're angry, you might as well express it. Since you feel lustful, you are a lustful person and you might as well do something about it. Since you are overcome with jealousy, you are a jealous person. And here's what sin wants you, sin wants you to say. I want you to identify with all the sinful feelings that, that come up in your body and he wants them to identify with them so closely that you think that's you. But I want you to get this reality that that is not the true you, that you are found in Christ, that that is really who you are. But you have to understand in all of this, sin is trying to get you to identify with the desires within you. And the world is trying to tell you if you will just take those desires, whatever those desires are, that is really you. Can you understand the lie that is being fed to you? That whatever your feelings are, that's the true you. That whatever the temptation is, that's the true you. I want you to get, like this is, you could be the most godly person on earth and, and, and I, you need to understand you are still temptable. You are still temptable. There's this ridiculous show back when I was a kid called Support Your Local Sheriff. A guy named James Garner starred in it. And so don't go out and rent it. I'm sure it's horrible. Like, have you ever watched old movies and you're like, how were we entertained by this? How, why did we think this was a great movie? Like, why do we have fond memories? Like you rewatch it and you're like, we've gotten so much better at filmmaking, you know? And so this is one of those movies. It was called Support Your Local Sheriff. It's about a, uh, a guy who's a gunfighter who needs some extra money. So he begins to take a job as a sheriff in this booming uh, Wild West town. They have built a jail with the, with the bricks and mortar, but they have sent off to the East Coast, right? Oh, it's always the East Coast, right? To get the bars for the jail, you know, the, the bars. Um, and so all they have in this jail that he's been hired to be the sheriff uh, for the town, and he is, you know, that's his office, that's his jail cell, is these cells, but they don't have doors. There's no doors. Um, and so they tell him, hey, you've got to clean up this town. And he's like, there's no doors to the, how am I supposed to put people in jail if there's no doors in the jail? And they're like, not our problem. And so he, he comes up with a solution. His solution is this, he takes a, uh, a piece of chalk and uh, between where the door's supposed to be and he draws a line right where the door is supposed to be. And then he goes and finds red paint and he dribbles the paint in a puddle right, right on the other side of that line. So then he goes about doing his job and he finds the guy to put in jail and the, and the, and the criminal um, looks at him and is like, you're gonna put me in a jail cell with no door and it's just this outrageously funny thing, right? And so he puts him in there and he says, you don't cross that line. If you cross that line, I'll do to you what I did to the last guy. And he doesn't tell him what he did, but he just puts that threat out there. 
And for the rest of the time, this guy is this this criminal is there in uh, in this jail cell without a door. He's staying inside the jail cell. There is no door, and it's like it, the the sheriff leaves, and he's gone for days at a time. And the guy stays in the jail cell. Why? Because there's a threat, but there's no actual power right? There's no door that's keeping him in. What's keeping him in is something in his head that tells him, you know, that there is power, but there's no real power. The guy made up the story, got, a, got some paint and a piece of chalk, but that was enough to keep that person in that cell. And I think the same thing happens that we begin to think about, oh man, what's the power that I have to be able to overcome sin, the power that I have to be able to, to make this right. And we begin to believe that whatever we feel is who we are. And we begin to identify with this sinful nature in this, and we don't identify with really the truth. And so we have this whole thing that we are in this, this rut, we are in these issues, and we stay in there, not because they actually have power over us, but because we have simply chosen to identify with them. And so here he goes. He begins to explain as we get to the end of this, and this is significant. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. It says, when you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. But what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Now he's saying this, hey, let's not fool ourselves that there's two choices here. You're going to be slave to one or the slave to the other. And there's more than just us feeling ashamed when we choose to identify with sin and the sin within our body and we succumb to the temptation. He says, there's more than that. He says, I want to press this further and help you to understand that any time that we take and understand that it's more than what we're ashamed of, but those things actually result in death. Like every time that sin begins to manifest in our life, it always leads to death. Always leads to death. That we begin to pursue sin and something dies. We begin to pursue sin and there's something that wilts. Like we begin to pursue this thing. The relationship dies. The, the, the future dies, right? The, the investment wilts away, right? Uh, this, whatever it is that when we begin to pursue this, um, this is what uh, dies. I, I want you to get, I, I, maybe you're here and you, you, don't, you don't believe any of this and, and you're not sure if you're, you've bought into this. But one thing I can tell you about you is whatever the greatest regret that you have in your life. Whatever this is, it could have been avoided if you hadn't fallen into sin. That your greatest regret in life could have been avoided if you hadn't identified and behaved in a sinful way. This is just what's true, that any time there is sin, it leads to regret. It leads to death. And this is where we begin to understand what it looks like for us to be able to walk this way. And so if you're here and, um, and you're like, and I'm, I'm not really motivated by this, Keith. Like, 
to identify with sin and, or to identify with God. And I, I, I kind of understand the God thing. But really, I kind of like the sin thing. And you're like, yeah, it's death, but I'm not sure if I've experienced that. It just seems like that's what fun is, that this is what I like to do. Like, like, like this is just, it's enjoyable to me. Here's my, here's my honest advice. If you're not in a place where, where this makes sense and you begin to understand that, go after your sin. Press further, faster, harder. And get to this place as fast as you can for you to understand the destination that sin is going to lead you. Don't spend a ton of your life thinking like, I can kind of vacillate and go back before between two masters, or I can dabble in sin and not really kind of believe that that's gonna lead to something that's gonna wreck my life. Don't spend a lot of your life, don't waste a lot of your life in this. Go after it. Figure out how messed up it's gonna get. Because the faster you find out those realities and the faster you have that wisdom in your life, There'll be a moment where you turn and you run back to God and God's going to be there and he's not going to say, I told you so. He's going to open his arms up and his grace and his mercy will envelop you and you'll be, you'll hum be humiliated by his love in this. But this is the kind of God that we serve, a God that brings you back in. But you need to understand why you would choose to identify with Christ and why that you would choose to not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Because if you're just dabbling in this thing and you don't understand, then you won't actually change your behavior and you'll ultimately think Christianity is just this kind of interesting idea, but not the power to actually change your life. So here's this last verse and this culminates and we can say, here's this, the gospel in one verse for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this summarizes this, not just for this, this conversion moment to be able to say, this is what it looks like, but this is really how we are to live our lives, to understand that the wages of sin is death. What we earn when we identify with sin is death, but what we earn when we identify with Christ is this eternal life, not meaning sweet by and by when I die, but meaning the here and now in my life. And so I wanna give you two practical steps. One, identify a part of your body to dedicate to Christ. Identify, like, so to keep this from just being this, like, strange sermon of this, like, uh, just kind of a theoretical idea, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to identify something that you wake up in the morning, and for the next few weeks, you begin to say, um, or just for the rest of this week, you begin to say, wake up and say, God, I dedicate this to you. It might be your mouth, or it might be your hands, or it might be your eyes, but it's probably your mouth. Um, and you need to say, okay, so, God, I need you to take this. I need you to take, and I want you to, um, to I want this to be used as a, 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 an element of righteousness, an instrument of righteousness in the world, and not an instrument of wickedness. And for you to be able to say, what is it going to look like? So maybe this week you take your mouth, maybe, maybe you say, I, I need, maybe you guys, maybe you take your eyes and begin to say, I am going not to allow this to be used by Satan. I'm not going to allow this to be used by sin as something that ultimately takes and um, is used for wickedness, but I'm going to use it for righteousness. Number two, and this is strange, speak to sin out loud. And here's what happens. 
because this is so rooted in our identity, if we don't externalize this, what will happen is we will get into ruts and we'll get into moments where we get stuck in this. If you do this, here's two reasons. That you are saying, when you say it out loud, you're saying, this is not me. And number two, when you say it out loud, it minimizes sin's power. You speak, the spoken word always minimizes the power. It seems like this daunting issue. You say, hey, this is my thing. This is my sin. This is how I, I get messed up in this. But if you will begin to say, okay, this is what this is, and you speak it out loud, it begins to root. It begins to just remove the power. That, that thing gets shrunk down so significantly. I, I want to close with a story that, um, that I remember from the fourth grade. I was in PE class in fourth grade, and this story was told to me. And, um, and I don't know why I was in PE class. Maybe that's just Texas education, right? Um, uh, but uh, evidently, we didn't do a whole lot of running, um, but, uh, but we did have some inspirational stories. Here's what, it, uh, here's what it is. So let me give you the story of Johnny Lingo. Get Johnny Lingo to help find what you want and then let him do the bargaining, asked, advised Schenken, as I sat on the veranda of his guest house and wondered whether to visit Nurabandi. He'll earn his commission four times over. Johnny knows values and he may, knows how to make a deal. Johnny Lingo, the chubby boy, Johnny Lingo, the chubby boy on the veranda, hooted uh, the name. Then he hugged his knees, knees and he rocked with shrill laughter. Be quiet, said his father, and the laughter grew silent. Johnny Lingo's the sharpest trader in this part of the Pacific. The simple statement made the boy choke and almost roll off the steps. Smiles broadened on the faces of the villagers standing nearby. What goes on? I demanded. Everyone around here tells me to get in touch with Johnny Lingo and then breaks up. Is it some kind of trick or a wild goose chase like sending someone uh, for a left-handed wrench? Is there no such person or is he the village idiot or what? Let me in on the joke. Not idiot, said Shinken. Only one thing. Five months ago at festival time, Johnny came to Kinawata and found himself a white. He paid her father eight cows. He spoke the last words with great solemnity, and I knew enough about island customs to be thoroughly impressed. Two or three cows would be a fair to middling wife. Four or five would be highly satisfactory. Eight cows, I said. She must have been a beauty that takes your breath away. Well, that's why they laugh, my guest said. It would be kindness to call her plain. She was little and skinny she walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked as if she was trying to hide behind herself. Her cheeks had no color. Her eyes never opened beyond a slit and her hair was a tangled mop half over her face. She was scared of her own shadow, frightened by her own voice. She was afraid to laugh in public. She never romped with the girls. So how could she attract the boys? But she attracted Johnny. This is the story that Shinken told me. All the way to the council tent, the cousins were urging her father, Sam, to try for a good settlement. Ask for three cows, they told him, then hold out for two until you're sure he'll pay one. But Sam was in such a stew and so afraid there'd be some slip in this marriage chance for Sarita that they knew he wouldn't hold out for anything. So while they waited, they resigned themselves to accepting one cow and thought instead of, and thought instead of their luck in getting such a good husband for Sarita. Then Johnny came into the tent and without waiting for a word from any of them, went straight up to Sam Carew, grasped his hand and said, father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. And he delivered the cows.
As soon as it was over, Johnny took Sarita to the island of Cho for the first week of their marriage. Then they went home to Nurabandi, and we haven't seen them since, except at festival time. There's not much travel between the islands. This story interested me, so I decided to investigate. The next day, I reached the island where Johnny lived. When I met the slim, serious man, he welcomed me to his home with grace that made me feel like the owner. I was glad that from his own people, he had respect unmingled with mockery. I told him that, that his people had told, him about, uh, told me about him. They speak much of me on the island. What do they say? They say you're a sharp trader, I said. They also say the marriage settlement you made for your wife was eight cows. I paused, then went on, coming as close to as a direct question as I could. They wonder why. They say that? His eyes lighted with pleasure. He seemed not to have noticed the question. Everyone in Kinawata knows about the eight cows too. I noted, I nodded. And in Nurabandi, everyone knows it too. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought, with disappointment. All this mystery and wonder about the explanation or, and the explanation's only vanity. It's not enough for his own ego to be known as the smartest, the strongest, and the quickest. He had to make himself famous for his way of buying a wife. I was tempted to deflate him by reporting that in Kinawata, he was laughed at for being a fool. As we spoke, a woman entered the adjoining room and placed a bowl of blossoms on the dining table. She stood still for a moment to smile with sweet gravity at the young man sat, seated beside me. Then she went swiftly out again. She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. This girl had an ethereal loveliness. The dew-fresh flowers which she had pinned back her lustrous black hair, accented the glow of her cheeks. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eye, all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. And as she turned to leave, she moved with grace that made her look like a queen. When she was out of sight, I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him look at, looking at me with eyes that reflected the pride of the girls. You admire her? He murmured. She's, she's glorious. Who is she? I couldn't help but to think, if she's a servant, how difficult this must be for a homely Sarita, having daily to be in the presence of such a beautiful woman, and what a temptation it would be for Mr. Lingo. She is my wife. I stared at him blankly. Was this some custom I had not heard about? Do they practice polygamy here? He, for his eight cows, bought both Sarita and this other woman? Before I could form a question, he spoke again. This is the only one, Sarita. His way of saying the words gave them a special significance. Perhaps you wish to say that she does not look the way that they say she looked in Kinawata. She doesn't. The impact of the girl's appearance made me forget tact. I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. You think he cheated me? You think eight cows were too many? A slow smile slid over his lips as I shook my head. She can see her father and her friends again, and they can see her. Do you think anyone will make fun of us? Much has happened to change her. Much in particular happened the day she went away. You mean she married you? That, yes, but most of all, I mean the arrangements for the marriage. Arrangements, I ask. 
Do you ever think, he said reflectively, what it does to a woman when she knows the price her husband has paid is the lowest price for which she can be bought? Then later, when all the women talk as women do, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe six. How does she feel the woman who has been sold for one or two? This could not happen to my Sarita. Then you paid an unprecedented number of cows just to make your wife happy? Happy? He seemed to turn the word over on his tongue as if to test its meaning. I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. You say she's different from the way that they remember her in Kinawata. This is true. Many things can change a woman. Things that happen inside, things that happen outside, but the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kinawata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now that she is now that she knows she is worth more than any other woman on the island. Then you wanted, I wanted my Sarita and I loved her and no other woman, but I was close to understanding. But he finished soft and softly, I wanted an eight cow wife. I want us to understand that your belief in who you are is what authentically changes what you do. I want you to understand that your heavenly father has sacrificed so profoundly that you would understand your true identity and that you would live into this identity every day and that you would understand what has been sacrificed for you. And that would allow you to live into your identity in Christ and not the sin that is in that is within you. So may you understand who you are and may that at its deepest core level change the way we behave. Let me pray for us. God, help us to understand just how deeply you love us. Help us to understand the profound nature of what you've done to purchase us and what you've done ultimately to make us into the identity of your sons and your daughters. God, I pray that we would take and not allow the sin within us to become our identity. God, today allow us to see what you believe about us and allow that to change everything about our lives. Give us the courage to truly believe in our identity that you have created above all else. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting resonate.net.